your own life and transform us more perfectly into your image. We need you, Jesus. And so we come submitting ourselves to you, Jesus. We love you and pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, friends, Christianity is a faith that teaches us how to live in this broken world. And Advent is a season that the church has set apart to do this work. Advent calls us and invites us to remember the countless generations that went before us, people who waited through very hard times often on the Lord to save. And many of them waited and waited and waited on that rescue. But as we remember their waiting, we also remember that Jesus came into the world. When it seemed like he would never come, he came and brought redemption. And so we trust in our own waiting that Christ will come again, that our God will save Advent teaches us to live with hope and a kind of holy patience, even while we still have broken bodies, broken families, a broken society, broken dreams, and broken hearts. Well, how do you live with hope in this kind of broken world? The testimony of Scripture is that we do it by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Now, friends, I know that may sound like a platitude. It may sound like an easy answer that avoids the hard realities of life, but it's not. Our faith is not a way to avoid the darkness and brokenness in this world. Now, Scripture describes the world as it actually is, as we experience it, broken. But in Jesus, it also points us to a hope beyond the brokenness that gives us the courage, the power to live with integrity and patience in a world of suffering, loss, And disappointment. Scripture's promise to us again and again is that our God will save. He will save. But as we read its story, we see that that salvation will probably not come how or when we expect it to. But the invitation that is set before us again and again, in spite of that, is a call to trust God anyway, even when it seems like He's moving too slow, even when it seems like His plans have already failed and it's too late. We see all of this played out in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a, is a book of the Bible in the Old Testament synonymous with Advent, with this season. It's one that we always read during this time of the year. Isaiah was a prophet who brought a message both of judgment and of hope. He held the two things together in a really incredible way. Terrible judgment, but beautiful hope. All these things we were reading before about the desert turning into a spring, and last week about the lion laying down with the lamb and plowshares coming from swords. Somehow he held these things together. And his word was, Israel, horrible things are coming, terrible times are coming. But know that even when that happens, your God has not failed. It doesn't mean that his promises have failed. He will still save. And so Isaiah gave Israel in hard times an admonishment to live in hope in the midst of terrible darkness. Now in Isaiah's day, Israel was fractured. It had broken into two. There's a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. A foreign empire that was very powerful had come and destroyed the northern kingdom. Assyria destroyed Israel. And now the Assyrians were at the very gates of Jerusalem, threatening and intending to destroy Judah too. It looked hopeless. It looked terrible. It looked like the end of the world. It looked like the people of God were going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And with them, all of God's promises. The people were terrified, and so was King Hezekiah. 
And so King Hezekiah looked for help, looked for hope, looked for protection to the king of Egypt. He saw that he was strong. He said, maybe he'll protect us. But in a way, he was also trusting in the gods of Egypt. And, and Isaiah said, no, trust in the God of Israel, even though it seems like this is all over with. And so Isaiah spoke these words to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah prayed to God, and God responded. It's an incredible miracle we don't talk about very often. It's very short in the text. But God wipes out the Assyrian army, 185,000 soldiers, and saves Judah. He preserves them. Israel is not destroyed. They're brought back from the brink of destruction. But uh, sadly and strangely, it's not long after that uh, that Hezekiah then seeks to make alliance with Babylon, this next huge and powerful empire that's on the rise. He reaches out to them, and they come and see all the treasures of Israel. And in his effort to try to stop Israel, Judah from being destroyed, he actually invites it. They see all the treasures of the temple, and soon thereafter, Babylon wipes Judah out. The thing that they tried to avoid happens. Now, Isaiah didn't live to see Judah's destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, but as a prophet, he saw it coming in the future. And his word to Israel was, even when this thing happens, even when it seems like God's plans have completely gone off the rails, even when it seems like it's all over and it's too late, God is not done. His promises have not failed. Even after all is lost, a shoot will rise up from that burned out stump. And so he gives Israel a call to set their eyes on God's promises and to live in the light of them, even when it seems like there's no point anymore, even when it seems like it's too late, even when the thing that they fear the most has already happened. Now, Isaiah's message takes on new life in the New Testament. Like Isaiah, the prophet John came to Israel bringing a message both of judgment and of hope. <clears throat> and as he brought this message, uh, he found himself in a situation similar to Israel, needing to trust God in spite of very real danger. If you can, put yourself in John's place. From birth, he knew that he was supposed to prepare the way for Israel's Savior King, the one who was going to come and save the day. He spent his life getting ready to do this, and finally he launches his public ministry. He goes out, he starts baptizing, and it's incredible, the response, right? Like It tells us that all of Jerusalem and Judea is going out to him to be baptized, repenting of their sins. An incredible revival is happening. It's really encouraging. And then, even better, John's cousin Jesus shows up and gets baptized, and John sees the Holy Spirit descend upon him, and he knows, you are the one, you're the king, you're the one that was promised, you're here. And then Jesus goes out and starts performing all these incredible miracles, and John has to be thinking, it's happening, it's really happening. All of God's promises, and then John gets arrested. And he doesn't get arrested, right, like for like a traffic violation or something where he's in jail for a couple of days. No, he's in the hands of the king who he has been publicly calling out, who really has no reason not to kill him. And so John finds himself caught between God's promises And the walls of his jail cell. Caught between God's promises and a situation that brings into question whether or not he was right about all this after all. And so the great believer, the one who told everybody that God was about to move in a way he never had before. After nothing significant had happened from heaven in 400 years. He starts to doubt. John starts to doubt. 
And it's no wonder. I mean, look at what he expected. This is what he says to the crowds about the Messiah that's coming. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was looking for an immediate fulfillment of justice. And so John sends a message to Jesus and says, in effect, hey, Jesus, where's your winnowing fork? Where's the unquenchable fire? If you're really the king, why am I in prison under the power of a false king? Is it really you or not? Are you going to save? Jesus' response from our gospel reading. This is what Jesus says. This is the message he sends back. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What's Jesus doing? What's he saying? Well, he's pointing to Isaiah chapter 35. He knew that John knew this very, very well. And so when John heard Jesus' response, his mind would have immediately gone to this chapter that we read a moment ago. Listen again to what it says and know that it's what John would have heard as the subtext of Jesus' response. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, certainly John in this moment, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What do we make of Jesus' response? Well, it's not a rebuke. He doesn't say, John, how dare you question me? Or, of all people, I thought you were on my side. No, he says, John, look. Look. The promised things are happening. It's all happening. And more, the dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. It really is me. It really is me. The promises are being kept. It is happening. You were not wrong. So what then about the vengeance and the recompense? What about the salvation? Yes, John, it is coming. You will be saved. But that salvation comes in the context of Isaiah. And that's on the other side of suffering. Because remember, Isaiah proclaimed hope, but Judah was still destroyed. But the point, the whole point, is that of Isaiah's message is that on the other side of that destruction, God's promises were still true and his salvation was still coming. He had not failed. You see, John was going to die in prison. The king would be calling for the headsman shortly, coming to collect John's head. But that did not mean that John was wrong or that God had failed. The promises would still be kept. God was still going to save. And so Jesus says to John, Blessed is the one. Not offended by me. In other words, John, I know this isn't what you expected, but trust me anyway. I won't let you down, though I know it looks like I already have. Trust me. Trust me. Now, this word from Jesus to John is also a word for us, and it's an invitation to live in hope, to live by faith, 
to live a holy kind of patience in the midst of the darkness. How do we do that? Again, we do it by keeping our eyes on Jesus. There's an image that's been in my head and in my heart for a few weeks, and it's one familiar to you, but I think it's really apt here. And it's the picture of uh, the disciples in the boat in a storm in the middle of the night. Jesus comes walking across the water, across the storm to them. And Peter sees Jesus, and he gets out of the boat, and he starts walking to Jesus. But then he sets his eyes on the waves and the storm, and he starts to sink. Many of us find ourselves caught in a storm. And when our eyes are on the waves, we start to sink. But when our eyes are on Jesus, we're able to walk through the storm. When the storms rage, the presence of these problems in our life, these big challenges, these real scary things, sometimes make us believe, we we take them as an indication that we can't trust God anymore. That if he were really trustworthy, if he was going to save, he would have done it already. And so we start looking other places for help. We begin to seek out Egypt and Babylon of our own. Worldly powers that don't have anything to do with God, that are visible and appear strong and swift. We say, maybe they will save us. Or sometimes, we're more committed to a faithful approach. And we say, I trust God's promises. They're all that I want. But as time goes on, it seems like his promises aren't going to be filled. It seems like he's not going to save. He's too slow. Or it seems like things have gone so wrong that there's no way he can actually come through with his promise. And we start to say, I'm going to have to deal with this myself. I've got to make God's promises happen however I can. I'm going to have to take over here. Now, probably the most memorable account of this in Scripture, the one we come back to as a key example, is the story of Abraham, right? You guys know the story. God promised Abraham that he would raise up a mighty nation through his descendants and that they would be a blessing for the whole world. The problem was that Abraham didn't have any kids, and he and his wife were old and getting older. And they came to a place where they had a conversation and basically said, look, I don't know if this is going to happen, and if we wait much longer, it won't be able to happen. We've got to do something. So Abraham and Sarah took Hagar, and Abraham had a child by her. Now, because of their impatience, the promise wasn't lost. God continued to work through their family. But in their impatience, they unlocked a brokenness in their family that unfolded for countless generations to come. Because they chose to to try and take God's promises by force. Now contrast that to David. David's not perfect. But God made a promise to David too. He said, through you, you will be king of my people, and through you I will raise up a line of kings forever. And he even had him anointed king while Saul was still on the throne. But even though it was God's idea for David to be king, God was the one that said, you will be king. Even when David had an army at his back urging him to do it, Even when Saul was asleep and undefended on the ground in front of him, David refused to kill Saul. He refused to take by force the thing that God had promised him. He was patient, and because of that, God blessed him. And so, this way of faith that we're invited into means proceeding through our lives as if God can actually be trusted, even when all evidence seems to point to the contrary. Even when it seems like God is too slow, or even perhaps that he's failed, that it's too late. The thing that we hoped for has already failed to happen. Now, faith doesn't mean doing nothing. 
But again, it means living as if God's promises were going to work out even when it looks like they won't. So I'm not talking about passivity. We are not called into passivity. Isaiah boldly told the truth. John confronted the powers of his day. Peter got out of the boat and walked in the storm. But this patience, this faith that we're called into in the darkness means living courageously and doing what is right and faithful without needing to manipulate or coerce to get what we want. Even when the thing that we want, even when we're right about this, is the thing that God has said should happen. It means walking in faith. It means living courageously without turning to Egypt or Babylon to secure our victory or any other power contrary to God to accomplish His purposes. It means following God and continuing ahead without taking Hagar or without killing Saul, without jumping from the top of the temple or bowing to the enemy, the things that Satan tempted Jesus himself to do and those, those temptations were real. Satan tempted Jesus to accomplish the right things to take hold of his identity of king of the world, but in the wrong ways. But Jesus was patient. And he did not fall into that trap. And so we too are invited to live out a kind of holy patience in a broken world. This is not indifference, but it is a moving forward courageously in hope, Trusting the promise, even when it seems impossible, that on the far far side of our current reality, our God will save. And being pulled along by that hope through whatever troubles we're sailing in. And so friends, what I'm saying is that to look to Jesus in the storm, it's not platitudes, it's not an opiate to help us avoid reality. Far from it. It is Jesus that gives us the hope to look into the darkness without despair. It is with Jesus that we can get out of the boat and walk in the storm. So what does this look like practically? Like, what does it actually look like in our lives today? Well, friends, there is brokenness in my life, and there is brokenness in your life. We have weaknesses. We have failed in various ways. We have sinned, and we continue to sin by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have hurt ourselves, and we have hurt others. And on our own, we find it very difficult to face that darkness. When we look at all of that, we feel shame, and the shame rises up in us, and we can't bear it, so we develop coping strategies, whether it's alcohol or food or the constant noise of technology in our eyes and in our ears or the pursuit of success. We find ways to escape our shame, to silence our negative feelings, or sometimes when that doesn't work anymore, we even go as far as to lean into the sin, to double down on the evil in our lives, and to learn to call it good. But friends, in Christ, we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide from our shame or our brokenness. Christ's love for us gives us the power to be honest with ourselves and with others, to face the darkness in us, to repent of the ways that we have harmed ourselves and others. Instead of hiding from it, to actually look at the places where we've been hurt and to begin to find healing, to look at the places we've hurt others and to begin to make amends. To stop regretting and repair. To stop hiding and find. With Jesus, we can do this. Jesus gives us the power to to, to engage the darkness in our own hearts and in our own lives, but also the brokenness in the world. His love enables us 
in spite of the darkness, to love others, even in their brokenness. In Christ, we find the strength to remain in challenging places with other people. Instead of fleeing or making enemies or burning bridges when there's conflict, we find the grace to negotiate healthy boundaries, to forgive, to share, to help, and to heal. And all of this is possible when we, like Peter, keep our eyes on Jesus instead of the storm. And friends, when we live this way, when we embody this kind of patient faith in a world that's broken, that thinks that we need to take control and win through force, when we have this kind of patient courage to forego manipulation or violence to guarantee our desired outcomes. People see who Jesus is. This kind of strange patience proves our confidence that our God can be trusted, that he really will save, that he will make all things new, that the deserts will bloom and that everlasting joy will be on our heads and that sorrow and sighing will fade away. This kind of patience is evidence that we as children of God, that our broken bodies and our broken families and our broken society, and our broken dreams will will indeed all find their shalom, their perfect wholeness, their joy and redemption in Christ against all odds. But it may not happen when or how we thought. But even when it doesn't, we are invited to continue to hope. This is what Scripture calls us to. This is what Advent calls us to, to hope in the darkness. Even when Jerusalem is besieged, even with the headsman on his way to our cell, even while the boat's sinking in the middle of the night, we look to Jesus, we hope, we live out of that hope, and when we do, the world knows who he is. Advent teaches us to live in the broken world, in this broken world, with our eyes trained on the world to come, on Jesus, who is at work among us already. Again, not to avoid the darkness, but that we might have the courage and integrity to walk boldly and patiently in it as a light for the world, confident that in Christ we will see the other side, as John saw the other side, as Isaiah saw the other side. So friends, as we bring this to a close, I ask you this. Where is the storm for you right now? Where are the waves demanding all of your attention? Where do you want to cling to the boat? Or if you've gotten out in faith, where is the storm raging? Where are you waiting on God to save? With a broken body? Sick, dying? With a broken family? Alienated? Abandoned? In a broken society full of injustice and confusion? broken dreams, with a broken heart? Where does God's response seem impossible? Where does it seem too slow or too late for you? Where are you tempted, even now, to take control with worldly power, to strike an alliance with Egypt or Babylon in your life, to see what they can get for you? Where are you tempted to make God's will happen by force? 
Where does it seem like the worst has already happened and it's just too late and there's nothing left to do but fold and give up? Whatever comes up for you as I've asked these questions, bring that to the altar today. Bring that to the altar. And as you come to the altar, remember, John wasn't the only one executed. When Jesus sent this message to John, he knew that John was going to die. And he knew that he was going to die too. When Jesus went to the cross, when he died, when he was executed horribly, it seemed like the worst had happened. It seemed like God had failed. The disciples all thought that it had. They thought that the plan had failed, that everything had gone off the rails and that it was over and that this, all of their hopes, everything that they had placed on Jesus, that it was done without redress. It was finished. But it was in that very moment, even while his body was in the tomb, that God was keeping his promises, that he was winning the ultimate victory. And so the invitation today, friends, is you bring whatever it is for you to the rail, is to come and partake of this Jesus To let the bread and the wine be a promise of his victory to you in the places where his victory seems too late or impossible. To receive him and to receive renewed hope and the power to live that kind of faithful patience that so many who have gone before have lived. Living in that hope by keeping our eyes on Christ in the midst of the storm. Jesus says to you, he says to me, I will save Maybe not in the way you expect. Maybe not when you expect. But I will save. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Amen.